Larry has a story for you, and right up here, Larry, where would you like us to be? Here? Okay. Here he comes. Here he comes. Here she comes. Any more? Here she comes. Lewis, don't do it. Lewis did it. Lewis was three years old. Ever since he was a little boy, his daddy reminded him, don't touch the tools. They were so sharp because Lewis's father was a harness maker, and he needed very sharp tools to cut very thick leather. And Lewis did it. He saw that his father was outside talking to the farmer, and Lewis had a piece of scrap leather in his hand, and it needed to have a hole right there in that piece of leather. Daddy was busy, so Lewis sneaked in the shop. He saw the awl. Now, an awl makes a little hole, especially in leather, sometimes in wood. He reached up for it, but couldn't quite reach it. He almost could reach it. And then he tiptoed up, and he grabbed it just as... He lost his balance and fell. And that tool, that sharp tool, instead of making a hole right there in that leather, made a hole right there in Lewis's eye. Oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. Oh, Daddy. When Daddy saw what happened, he thought, Oh, I got to get Lewis to the doctor. And he grabbed Lewis. He was very light. He was only three years old. And he ran down the several blocks to the doctor's house and knocked on the, do the door. And the doctor's wife came and told him, No, the doctor is not here. The doctor was sent to the war very recently. And we don't know when he's coming back. Oh, what am I going to do? Lewis is hurt. Well, the only thing the, doc, the uh, doctor's wife could think of was the herb lady down on the other side of town. So he went to the herb lady. And there wasn't much the herb lady could do because it was such a bad wound. And she... Uh, cleaned it as best as she could, and she put a clean bandage on it the best that she could, and she said, Lewis might be all right unless, unless infection happened. Yeah. And you know what? Infection did happen. In the first week after Lewis was lying in bed, it was evident that he was going to be blind in this eye all of his life. 
But he still had one good eye. Unless, unless the infection spread, and it did spread. And before Lewis got off of his bed, one month after the accident, he was totally blind. That's really, really bad. Right? Very bad. But you know, our God can take really, really bad things, even when it's our own fault. He can take very, very bad things and make very, very good things come from them. Now listen to this. Lewis was sad when he got out of bed. He could not see. But his family helped him. All they could. Mama helped show him how to do things in the kitchen that would be help for her. Little sister took him outside and told him about the things that she saw. And one of Lewis' favorite things to do was go to the library. And she would check out books for Lewis. And she would read him stories. Lewis said, oh boy, if I only could read. A little boy that was blind, his desire was to read. How much more important is this? We have good eyesight right now. Do we want to read? Anyway, his sister helped him. She made the alphabet out of weeds that she found in the, uh, in the meadow, the grass stems, and she made A, B, C, D. He, and pretty soon, Lewis knew his alphabet. A few years later, and they found a place for him at the blind school in Paris. Oh, he was so lucky. There he asked the people, do you have a library? Oh, yes, we have a library. Oh, great. How many books do you have? We have two books. I thought you said you had a library. We do, but each book for blind people to read at that time was 20 volumes. And it took up the whole library just for two books. Lewis thought to himself, you know, there's got to be a better way. And as the years went on, he kept studying about a better way. Finally, to a long story short, Lewis found a way to make dots represent letters. And instead of feeling with your whole hand in a book that weighed pounds and pounds and pounds, and just a few words on each page, he could put a letter right under his finger. Have you ever heard of a system like that? What do they call those little dots? Do you know what they call those? Huh? You're right. Have you ever heard the name or the, uh, the reference to Braille? Yeah? Braille. Well... That was Lewis's last name, Lewis Braille. And the terrible accident that happened to Lewis blessed the whole blind world with the ability to read with their fingers. God made 
a very bad thing to be a very good thing for other people. He does that kind of thing all the time. He does not cause trouble and accidents, but he uses them to make good things for his people. Back to your seats now. So our sermon theme today is talking about how God can take somebody from death to life. And so children, as you are listening to the sermon today, I want you to listen carefully because there'll be about five places in the sermon, some at the beginning, some in the middle, some at the end, which means you've got to listen to the whole thing, where I'm going to talk about going from death to life. And if you can cite one of those to me or you can answer a couple questions at the end if you're younger and don't have a story all in your mind, then I'll give you some gifts in my, that I have here or in my office. And so please uh, see me after the service. And adults, that means I probably won't shake your hand very long at the door. I'll probably be there for a few minutes, and then I'll be right over here. So that's for our children as we begin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for how you lead us and you guide us to understand that you can take what looks like a bad experience, maybe even a near-death experience, and turn it into life. And so, Lord, guide us and direct us to see that that's only possible through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. In 547 B.C., Choresis, king of the Lydian Empire, which was an empire that covered the area of the seven churches that we're discussing, began to recognize that Cyrus, the king of the Persians, was going to gain preeminence over the Medes. There had been an attempt on Cyrus's life where his grandfather attempted to kill him. He went from facing death, children, to life. That was Cyrus at a young age. And Cyrus began to become a military foe to individuals such as Croesus. Uh, Cyrus defeated the Medians, overcame all those obstacles, merged the empire into what we call the Medo-Persian Empire, and began to march out to outlying areas. One of the areas that began to pay tribute to Cyrus was the Lydian Empire. One of the main cities was Sardis in the Lydian Empire. That was the capital. And at one point, Croesus, the king of the Lydian Empire, decided that he was going to seek out a wise person and seek an oracle of whether or not he should cross the river, which is pictured here in a modern picture, cross the river and attack the Persian Empire. And the oracle suggested vaguely that if King Croesus crossed the Halys River, a great empire will be destroyed. So he decided that was it. I should cross over and destroy the Medo-Persian Empire, especially the Persian element, because he had been actually allies with the Medes at one point. And before he crossed that river, he sent out messengers to neighboring kingdoms, even the Spartans across the Mediterranean Sea, and said, if I go to war and it's sustained, will you be my ally in war? And now, if you know anything about the Spartans, you know that they were a feared warrior class. They were trained from the time of youth all the way up to be warriors. Uh, you can watch documentaries on it and all of that. They readily agreed. Other kingdoms readily agreed. And so here this individual is, Croesus, the king of the Lydian Empire, feeling quite well equipped to go to war, a sustained war against the Persians. He fought Cyrus 
uh, as he, cro he crossed the river there, he fought Cyrus at a stalemate at Pateria, which is Cappadocia area. And uh, actually, he took the city, but Cyrus came from afar and intercepted him before he could get away. He, uh, he took prisoners and all of that. Croesus took prisoners. And Cyrus comes to defend his city, sieges the city. Croesus runs away, but Cyrus doesn't stop. He pursues the Lydians all the way to their capital, thinking this power needs to be held in check for my empire to be secure. Of course, you know this is following Bible prophecy, isn't it? If you look back in Isaiah, it predicted way before this would ever take place through the, through the prophecies of Isaiah that Cyrus would be the anointed ruler who would actually give some form of religious freedom to God's people. And so Cyrus, knowingly and unknowingly at times, is following the very blueprint of Daniel and Isaiah. He pursues the Lydians to Sardis, and here's a picture of Sardis. You can see it. Sardis was in a fertile valley, and it had these mountains behind it. In fact, Sardis was known for originating the idea of minting coins. Uh, minting coins had happened in other places as well, but, but pure gold coins. If you know about uh, gold panning or things like that, you can get a, a flake that's attached to something or even a nugget that has other impurities. People were puzzled as to how can we go about making pure currency because they didn't want to get a nugget that was not pure, that had half of its silver or something like that. Well, Choresis and the Lydians, they decided to develop a process to purify gold, develop coinage, and that's what actually built their empire was this, this huge amount of wealth, and some of that gold came from the mountains behind them there. And so here's this leader on the retreat, but he has over 400,000 troops at the ready in the Sardis area. Cyrus, it's estimated, had half of that because he's traveling with those troops. And so he gets to the city. He basically turns around. He gathers his infantry into its ranks. He got ahead of Cyrus somewhat, got them organized. He has his cavalry at the sides. Here comes Cyrus. He's got his infantry kind of spread in a U formation, his cavalry, but he begins to sprinkle in something that his general, who helped save him from his Median grandfather years before, helped save him in this battle. His, his general said, sprinkle camels in amongst the infantry and amongst your cavalry. Because horses are afraid of camels. So, here's some ruins of Sardis. It was a huge city. Here's this giant army out there. And at one point... The Lydians are winning at the very beginning, but then the infantry of Cyrus begins to march with these camels. The cavalry comes from the city towards Cyrus, sees the camels, and there's estimated about 60,000 cavalrymen coming, just this huge amount of horsemen coming, coming out of the city, rushing towards Cyrus. They see the camels and get in disarray. Begin, people begin to fall off of horses. All of this, people are stampeded. And here comes the infantry just chopping away at these people. And as a result, they then begin sending their cavalry in, their horsemen in, as the horsemen turn around from, and go back towards the city. So they were defeated, really, partly because of camels. Now, that was an instance if you would want to get technical, where Cyrus, who was facing insurmountable odds, humanly speaking, should have been defeated, should have faced death, but went into life, a living experience, a very much coming out of it a live experience. So young people, that's a hint for you. But as I re kept reading this historical account, 
It says that Cyrus defeated the Lydians before reinforcements could come. Those Spartans were waiting. Others were waiting. The city was besieged once the, once the army of Croesus was scattered. They took and besieged the city. Before the message could get to the Spartans and others, Cyrus took the city. Cyrus spared Croesus' life. So here he is facing death. Typically, he'd be burned alive. Saves Croesus from the burning pyre. Croesus asked Cyrus, what are those men yonder doing so busily? As, as uh, they're actually plundering the city. Plundering the city? To which Cyrus replied, and carrying off your riches, not my, rich, not my riches, Croesus says. It is your wealth which they are pillaging. And so he turns it on Cyrus there. He's faced death. Now he's actually going to become one of Cyrus's advisors. And let me go ahead and turn this off here real quick. Tell you guys to silence your phones in here. I'm not silencing mine. Sorry about that. This type of wisdom, this type of play on words hit a chord with Cyrus. And Cyrus decided to basically have him as one of his advisors. Um, Croesus sent somebody to Delphi again where the oracle was spoken. And basically it's explained that you misunderstood it wasn't Cyrus's empire that was going to fall. It was yours. And so Croesus goes on to be this advisor. As the historical accounts, you can look at different ones, suggest Herodotus is the most uh, authoritative, I guess, on some of these matters. He later advises the great king Cyrus to make sure that the Lydians forgot how to fight and learn more peaceful arts. So he actually turns on his own people. Uh, there's an uprising where somebody takes some gold from the area there, and Cyrus tells them to go and to get some installment of troops supplied and all that, and they run away with the money and gather an army, and they try to fight Cyrus. And here comes Croesus advising him, after he defeats the Lydians at that point, make sure that from now on they become a peaceful people. They learn more peaceful arts. And so soon, he said, they will succumb to luxury and no longer be a threat. Cyrus recognizes this is sound advice. He proceeds to do just that, and really the city of Sardis and the Lydian Empire fall as a result of this advice. So here's Lydia's ruler. He's gone from death to life, but he turns on his own people to the point where his own people are no longer a military threat. They can no longer go to battle. They can no longer even be a vying empire at all. And as I read about this story, and I think about how it relates to Sardis, because this is the capital of the Lydian Empire, can't you see some parallels to Revelation? Can't you see some parallels to the Bible? I mean, there's death to life. There's, there's this idea of somehow watering down the believers to the point where they can't go to war anymore. You have all of these things taking place, and it's interesting, you find them in the book of Revelation as well. In seven churches, we've looked at them as time periods in history. Church goes from really a, a fervor, really a battle mindset, apostolic times, the spiritual warfare, and you get on down through time as a result of persecution, as a result of the union in the medieval times. Even though there has been a reformation, the church slips back in those relatively peaceful times, doesn't proceed further in the reformation. Goes into what we call orthodoxy. Teach them peace. Teach them not to go to war anymore. They look to their buildings, they look to their teachers and preachers and all that instead of to the word of God. And it seems to be a stall in what God's final work, it should have been accomplished, we know, by the 1800s. So here we are still today. And so we see after the Reformation, 
comes orthodoxy, or, or basically a watering down of the truth to the point where it's looking at institutions and all of that, and that's the church at Sardis. And the only way to overcome death in this chapter we're going to look at is to restore our focus on a life-giving monument himself. That's what we're going to find in this text. So let's look at it together as we look at the church of Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Or as some translations say, the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. If you know this is Jesus, we know that he's the one who has the seven stars. So this is a personal message from Jesus. And it says here that he hath the seven spirits, or he has the seven spirits of God. Jesus has the spirit, like he owns it. Is that what we're talking about? Or is it, in a sense, I have the church in my hand, and I send the spirit upon the church, personally. It's like having the source, knowing us personally, giving us what we need. Well, if you're wondering about that, Acts chapter 2 tells you, in verse 32... This Jesus, this is Peter preaching, hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, and then he sheds it forth upon his church. So in that sense, he's a source, not necessarily like he owns the Holy Spirit and all of that, but he, he and the Holy Spirit are in a collaboration, a, a relationship where he sends the Holy Spirit and his authority to this earth. Because he's the one who's received all power and authority, right? And if you read John 17, it's pretty clear that Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, if I'm in you, then the Spirit's in you. This whole relationship takes place because of Jesus becoming one of us. So as I read, here is he that has the sevenfold Spirit of God, or, or as we can know, the number seven is the perfect Spirit of God, this is Jesus saying, as we get down through the text, you'll need me and the Holy Spirit to really overcome the death that you're experiencing. Right from the get-go, we have this. And so as we look at the rest of that, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, and that thou livest, and thou art dead. And so here he's talking to Sardis, which literally can be this idea of the red ones. They were known to be people who made... Uh, took wool and they dyed it red and sometimes they would even make carpets for kings. Well, their lady and king obviously had the money for that. But the red ones, he says to them, I know you have a name that you live. In other words, the reputation is that you're alive, but you are dead. You're near death. They have a near death experience. Be thou watchful and establish the things that remain, which were ready to die, for I have found no works of thine perfected before my God. This is interesting. Thou hast a name that thou livest. It sounds like you're alive, but you're dead. You look to be alive, but you're dead. It almost reminds you of some of the sayings of Jesus in other places. Whitewashed tombs inside, dead man's bones. I mean, they have this name that they are alive. And in the ancient Near East, your name meant something. Your name was attached to you as a person. You know, you ever hear, he's got a good name, you know, or, or 
that's a man you can trust, or it has something to do with your reputation of who you were. That's why people name their businesses after their last name, or the Miller and Sons, you know, or you know, put your name in there, and, you know, whatever. They would do this because their name used to mean something, and that's what happens in the ancient Near East. Your name meant something. Your name was attached to your character. So they have this name, but they don't have the character. It's like coming and wearing a suit, and then there's something different at home. You know, there's this idea of claiming to be a Christian in name, but lacking the power. And we have a lot of that going on today. Where if Jesus is the one who we profess to be followers of, and we have his name, then what does it look like in our lives? It should look different than what it looks like without him. Or maybe we've kind of gone through the motions long enough or we've lived without him long enough and we don't even know what it will look like to live with him. Something like that has happened here. They've, they've tied themselves to their teachers and, rather than to the teacher himself. Something has happened in this place and historically that's exactly what happened to the Christian church. They tied themselves to Luther and to Calvin and to these others, even eventually to their buildings. Even today we still have this whole thing about building buildings. I mean, it's like... Buildings are important to be used for God. But they are not God. You know, I've seen amazing buildings. I remember I took an art class where we looked at pictures of these beautiful cathedrals. I'd never been to very many of them. I went to a, one of them that had turned into a science museum in, in London, but that's about the only time I've ever seen one. It was on the way to a mission trip. But that's exactly what the Christian church began to do. They looked at position, prestige, buildings, and whatever they were told, that's as far as they ever went. Come on, you guys, we've got to have more initiative than that. You don't need the pastor to tell you to do everything, or the elder, or whoever, or the ministry leader. We all need to chip in and be able to have that initiative. We all have to be able to think on our own as well. Because, frankly, your flock will be scattered soon. That's the way I read my Bible. They'll strike the under-shepherd, thinking they're striking the shepherd, and they'll scatter the flock. Happened in Jesus' day, happened in the book of Acts. They went after the apostles in the book of Acts. It's going to happen again. And so this is a temporary gathering place where we can strengthen and encourage each other, but this is not a place that we rely upon in and of itself. We rely upon the God and the relationships that we foster here. Because soon, this whole experience will be taken away. And quite frankly, they'll have whitewashed tomb people in here who are maybe meeting on a different day. So we have to use it while we can because back then, they, com they compromised. They had a name in Christian history. And it began to be an orthodox experience, going through the motions. I have a comment that, came, uh, that was commenting on Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and onward. This is from letter 58, dated 1900 from Ellen White. She says, there are some things which we need to guard. True, right? Letters will come asking questions in regard to the sealing of the people of God. Who will be sealed? How many? Other prying questions. I think we must tell them to read and speak of the things that are plainly revealed. Plainly revealed. There are some things that are being spoken of that are not plainly revealed. Even back then, in 1900, so much more so today. We have encouragement in the Word of God. This is what I recognize the Word of God as. If someone comes to me and the, and the whole thing is about criticism of a fellow thing happening in the church or in the world, it's just all criticism, no encouragement, 
Have I received a bomb of Gilead? No, the Elijah message comes with a bomb of Gilead as well as a call to repentance. And we know the Elijah message from John pointed to Christ. And so we have encouragement in the word of God that if we walk humbly with God, we shall receive instruction. Each one of us. You don't need me to be telling you this. I'm just here to remind you. We shall receive instruction. But prying curiosity. What is it? Prying curiosity. You know those people who like to pry. Hear a little juicy tidbit here or there. And spread it around like it's a fact. You know, I heard that, that at the Unity Sabbath, we were supposed to have read from a Catholic Bible. Somebody was spreading that around. Yeah, I, we read from King James Bible at certain points in the, in the service. Was that the, was that the Catholic Bible? Well, actually, I think so, because the hellfire teaching in the King James Version is not biblical. The, the translation forever and ever, and we have to spend gymnastics. I think that was a remnant of orthodoxy in the, in the medieval period there, that they'd come as far as they could go, and they did a translation the best of their ability. But, so did we read from a Catholic Bible? Yes and no. Uh, NIV? And I, I got a whole sermon we could do on translations here. None of them are perfect. The Koine Greek that it was originally translated from, it means common Greek. It wasn't, it wasn't Lucan Greek. If you look at the Lucan Greek the, 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 and Plato and all of them, they have such a high flute in Greek compared to John in Revelation. Jesus chose a language that the common person could understand. And so whatever translation you use, make sure that it's got a consistent message all the way through. It isn't tampering here and there. But we should have a message of encouragement, not prying and looking for some little thing to, to put doubt on everything that's going on around us. Prying curiosity is not to be encouraged. To the second chapter of 2 Timothy, we may refer those who are desirous of originating some new and strange thing which is the product of human imagination, and as much below the grand and noble sentiments of holy writ as the common is below the sacred. This is mixing the common with the sacred. It's looking for something spurious and new when we have a pure foundation laid for us from the word of God. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. The apostles, their message all pointed to Jesus Christ. His message was all based upon the foundation of the Old Testament. The whole thing is about him. Read the road to Emmaus. This is exactly what she's talking about. And that's what happened in the days of the medieval church. And so quite frankly, we're becoming medieval if we go into these spurious ideas. We're finding another source other than the word of God. And eventually he will have the, 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 the man of sin. If you want to throw it out there, the papal power will have the avenue in his hand just as much as he will have the rest. If we do not stand upon holy writ. I should write a 95 thesis. Because there's a lot to imagine, isn't there? And really, until we become into a body where we can have some give and take, we can talk like, you know, Sabbath school and Bible studies and all of that, our human imagination seems to be right all the time. But it's a body that when we come together, we can sharpen one another. So if I'm sharpening you a little bit, um, my razor strap is, is used for that, not for anything else. So I'm not trying to beat anybody up. And I don't even own a righteous razor strap. And as much below the grand noble sentiments of holy writ as the common is below, the, that's the goal of Satan. We may answer foolish questions by saying, wait, and we shall know all, we shall all know what is essential for us to know. Wait, and then we don't know everything about that topic. I don't know everything about that topic. I don't have time to delve into all those topics. But by and by, we will know all about what you're talking about. 
We'll know the whole truth. And that matter will present itself in a way, frankly, if something really is going on, eventually it does surface. So there's some credence to conspiracy theories. Wait, and we shall all know what is essential for us to know. Our salvation does not depend upon side issues. Side issues. Look up that phrase. Go to whitestate.org. Type in side issues. Read everything she says about side issues. I'm almost getting into a side issue by talking about the side issue. But this is what happened to the church, historically. This is what kills the church. Because it separates it from the very author of life, the very water of life. I was hiking up at Yosemite, and Yosemite has those two part, three parts of the park, right? The main valley, the northern part, which is closed off because of snow, and then west is Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. Some of you might have been there before. As you're coming towards Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, come around a corner, and you see these waterfalls coming off the left side of the reservoir. And you're like, wow, I'd love to hike all the way over there. It's only two and a half miles one way to the farthest one, and two and a half miles back. But there's some up and down moderate hike. And so Marie, myself, the kids, and Grandma and Grandpa said, We're gonna, let's go ahead. So we started going. Let's get sunscreen on. We got poison. Some of them got poison oak from that. But at a certain point, there were two waterfalls way off that you could see from a distance. But before that, there was one you couldn't see until you were right upon it. And I can tell you right now, it's one thing to see a waterfall. It's another thing to tip your toes into the waterfall. You can't swim in all these places. Technically, it's going to San Francisco, which is a whole other strange lobby situation. But anyway, this waterfall came off, and in one of these days I'll show you the pictures, of this kind of reddish granite-looking rock. came down, it disappeared, then another flowed down here. By the time you get to the trail, there's a pool of water to the left. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm getting rather thirsty. Our water bottles are getting kind of empty. So I'm going to go filter some water out there. This is what we're talking about here. The main issue is Jesus. He's the source of the water. He's the refresher of our souls. He's the one who we go to to be refreshed. He's the one who gave us holy writ. He's the one who created everything. He's the one who says before the foundation of the world, I knew you. That's Jesus. So I don't want to spend any more time on this, but basically Jesus is the main issue. Side issues may have to be addressed at times, but it's not the main issue. And so Sardis had this experience where they, something killed their faith. And all I'm trying to say is don't let whatever it is take your mind off of Christ. You can fill the blank in there. Sardis had that orthodoxy problem, but was told to be watchful. Establish the things that remain, which were ready to die. For I have found no works of thine perfected before my God. That's... It seems harsh at first, but let's just think about the words. Be watchful. It's like somebody who you know is going to be harmed if they don't wake up. You ever had an experience like that? Where maybe someone's just not thinking, they're walking right towards something there, and, oh, rattlesnake. You know, something, something that's, they're not mindful. They're not watching out. And what, what is a cry you need to do? Stop them, right? Watch out. Right? That's the type of thing that's going on in the Greek. Wake, whoa, watch it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not like he's saying, wake up, boy. Drag you out of bed. Throw you, you know, throw you into what you're supposed to be doing. That's not what we're talking about here. Be watchful means to wake up. Quit sleeping when you should be on your feet. It's almost like a term that you apply to some soldiers. You know, They are there to guard. 
on the wall. And we all know the penalty for some of these soldiers in ancient times if they fall asleep. And a buddy comes alongside you and says, hey, look, see, he's asleep. No, the buddy comes up and says, come on, wake up. He's coming around now. Five minutes, come on, get up. So they're going to cover for each other. And if I know Jesus well enough, in Ephesians, we know he has our rear guard. We know that he's everything, all the armor's from him. He's got us in mind when he says something like that. That we literally need to be awake because there is not some overseeing father who's going to come along and kill you because of that. It's Satan who's really coming along to steal, kill, and destroy. And he doesn't want us to be succumbing to that. So wake up. Establish the things that remain. Strengthen or encourage. That is what Jesus wants them to do. So awaken, be strengthened and encouraged, and perfect. I have not found you being able to perfect your works before God. That comes from telos, which is the idea of finishing the course, crossing the finish line. In other words, you have stopped. You have not even gotten near the finish line in your faith. So he's saying, overcome and be victorious. So what's he saying to the church? Wake up, be encouraged and encouragers of others, and finish this work, finish the course. That's the Miller translation. And that's really the bottom line of this message. That is how we go from death to life. Every church has that experience where they're incur- we awakened to their need, they're encouraged, and then they keep pressing on. I have seen that in countless congregations, and I know we think we're such a small congregation here at Anderson, but come on, guys, drive over to Nebraska sometime. Drive over to Kansas sometime. You'll get into that door there, and they'll say, hey, Pastor, you got this the conference to say, 50 members down there in Holdridge. You get down there, and there's 12 people in the church. I mean, come on, right here. There you are. Be encouraged. The work is dying in some places, but the one thing that happens to those small churches is they turn around fast when they wake up to their need. That You know, we can't keep going on the way we are. When they're encouraged, the pastor comes along and says, I know you can do it. And at every board meeting, everything is pointing forward to the mission. That's how that happens. I'm not saying they're going to finish the course and all of them be alive when Jesus comes. Some of them are older, but they keep pressing forward. That's what he says to us today as well. And so, continue the Reformation, if you want to use the seven church as time periods. Then continue the Reformation, continue revival in your heart, Reformation in your churches as well. But how do we do that? Well, he tells us how. Jesus isn't just going to say it, he's going to tell you how. Just like he told the woman, go and sin no more. I forgive you, go and sin no more. That's an empowering. That's not saying, hey, you're on your own. No, if he's giving you a command, it's an enabling. And so he's offering something to her. In his authority, she can go and sin no more. In his name, she can go and sin no more. The same thing happens to the church. He doesn't leave us hanging there and say, well, you're dead, and you think you're alive, but you're really dead. That's it for you. He says, this is what you can do. Remember, that's the idea of monument. Some kind of monument has to be set up in our hearts and in our church. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and didst hear. That's what our scripture reading was about, how they heard and they touched and they felt this Jesus. And keep it and repent. So it's like it dawns on you, I forgot something. I dropped something on the trail. You turn around. First you remember, then you turn around and you go back. The remembering, the going over the history. And as a pastor, I need it more than... Maybe some at times, because I face a lot of other little cases and things that take my mind off of really what we're doing here. 
But this week I sat right over here, and frankly, my mind was, kids, dead and numb to how good we are doing here. I know things are happening periodically they are discouraging, but, but I was sitting right here because it's so hot in the office. You think it's warm in here? Go sit in there or in there after 9 o'clock in the morning. So I'm sitting here, I'm typing away, and I'm, what am I typing? Well, I have a chapter due for my doctoral paper, book. It's, it's a whole chapter that's due in a month. So I'm typing away, and part of the thing is for you to put down what was your project like, what happened as a result of it. I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go on the internet and get somebody else's book, and I'll see how they did it, and so I can get an idea of how I'm supposed to write this thing, because they don't give you always samples on everything. So I'm reading this guy's thing, and he's, he's showing, well, tithe went up here, and attendance here, and you know, this amount of small groups were planted, and I said, oh, that's what it, we're talking about. So I go back through, and I start looking at, at our tithe figures. You know, at one point, like in 2011, you went, way, 10, you went way up there, and then wham, after 2010 into 2011, way down. You kind of leveled off, ups and downs, then started going down in about 2013, before the project ever started. And so the conference looks at that and says, oh, they're going down in tithe. Attendance, going down. Mission giving, whoa, way down. And so I'm like, okay, I'll look at the reports now since 2014, 2015, because that's from my project years. It all went up. So I'm sitting right here in this chair thinking, Lord, what more do we need to do? I don't, I'm, I'm tired at times. Some of you are tired. We've done a lot in the last few years. But it reminded me of how far we've come. Tithe went shooting up. Uh, mission giving went way back to 2011 levels. All this was taking place. The number of ministries you started, warm pockets, health ministry, things for the youth, all these things came to mind. I'm thinking, you know, the year that we tried to do a yearly mission trip. We missed one last year. But all of these things came to mind right there in that chair, and it was a monument. Took my mind from a feeling of, man, I'm tired and kind of feel like you're dying, right? Not necessarily spiritually, but just a lot of things happening, to now excitement. That's what it did. Now, if that can happen to me, sitting in the chair there, then it can happen to us sitting in our chairs at home and other places as well. God can take whatever experience it is and turn it into something good. But we have to remember first, what was it like before a relationship with somebody got rocky? What was it like before maybe this incident happened or that happened? What was it like? Go back and remember. Bottle that up. It isn't going to deal with the situation perfectly, but it's going to give you hope and encouragement. And then you can turn back and begin to deal with it. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come as a thief. Jesus comes as a thief to those who are not watching. He doesn't come as a thief, as we think of left behind. He comes as a thief to the church and everybody, it seems like. You know, because he snatches people up. and all. That's not what he's talking about. He comes as a thief to those who refuse to repent, who refuse to remember, and eventually become infidels and enemies of Jesus. Now, we know he comes as kind of as a surprise to us because we don't know exactly when, but we should know Jesus well enough to know these signs are taking place, this is happening. We know that Jesus is trustworthy and faithful and he's, he's getting coming soon, right? We should know that. But he says, I'm going to come as a thief to you if you don't remember and repent, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. But thou hast a few names in Sardis that did not defile their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, 
for they are worthy. So even though he's got to remind the whole church to repent and remember and repent, there are a few who don't need to. And maybe that's the case for some of you here today. Maybe things are going perfectly fine for you right now, or oh, just wait, something will hit eventually. But the storms aren't there right now. Maybe things feel perfectly fine. I, I praise the Lord for that. I'm actually happy for you. But when those moments happen, if we get to the point where we're the few and we have to hear the same message, we, should, we have the same prescription from Jesus. Remember and repent. And so God always has a remnant. He had a remnant during the orthodoxy period. Eventually, we, we as a denomination and others who are bringing back truth rose up out of that orthodoxy. And we have a worldwide mission. And so it's the same message as he told the Ephesus who lost their first love. Remember and repent. They need to have this monument. They need to keep remembering, keep on letting Jesus lead. And whatever happens, if we've stopped somehow pursuing to know Jesus, go back to it. And so, what is his promise to them? He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. If you've read the book of Revelation and somehow you believe that in predestination to the point where everybody who has been chosen is saved and they can't choose otherwise. Now, this is a problem for you. I don't think there's anybody here that believes that, but predestination means pro, before, horizo, to think or to know. It's not about God picking and choosing who's going to be saved. It's about him knowing you personally, calling you by name before the foundation of the world. The question is, are we going to respond to it? Because if we don't respond to it, he blots our names out. He wants our names in the book of life. But he will blot them out. And the only thing that will remain then will be a book of our sins and life experiences in the whole onlooking universe, including those of us who are saved, will see that. Now, that's fearful a little bit. But that doesn't motivate me. What motivates me is that he loves me enough to say, if you overcome, if you are victorious, your name will stay there. It will never be removed. It'll be a new name. You know, Murray, of the sea, right? I like to think of the sea of glass. Because, you know, it says there's no more sea in Revelation. So my name doesn't mean much after, after we get there, right? But of the sea of glass. And maybe he'll give me something like that, a newer one. But whatever that new name is, that's right there in the book of life forever. Nothing to doubt. Nothing to take away. That's what he's telling this church. You will go from death to life forever. And notice the happiness in this text. You say, what happiness? Well, look, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will confess means I'm going to state it openly, joyfully, jumping up and down. That's what I'm going to do. Uriel, that's my son. Put your name in there. Jake, Althea, they're, they're here. They made it. You know, you can almost sing, see him singing hallelujah. Joyful. That's what the text is bringing out. You ever seen a Jewish rabbi? After he's done, they, they, they pass the Torah around, and then they've, they basically preached on it, and then after the service, he's breaking bread. He's jumping up and down. Thank you, Lord. That's what's describing right here. Not some strange hypnotic Pentecostal thing, but, but a praise the Lord. Hands saying, yes, there he is, there she is. And he does it before the Father and before his angels. Before his angels. That's the promise to that church. That's the promise to us as well. What will it look like? 
Everything good in men and women is the fruit of the working of the Holy Spirit, that perfect spirit that Jesus talked about. The Spirit teaches us to reveal righteousness in our lives. And we know that's an ongoing thing. Some of us, it's more of a battle for some of us than others to, to do that. We know because of our inherited and, and cultivated tendencies. But the Spirit teaches us to reveal righteousness in our lives. The greatest work that can be done in our world is to glorify God by living the character of Christ. Oh, there's, a whole, there's a whole website like that, right? We should put a whole website together. How to live the character of Christ. God will make perfect only those who will die to self. So another story that's right here in this message to Sardis is your story and my story. Sardis serves as a mirror and says to each one of us, what do I need to die to to really live? Because we know that we have to die to really live. And that's what Jesus did. So we have his name. We've died to these things, and now we truly are alive. We have to keep believing it. Those who are willing to do this can say, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And she's citing Galatians 2.20 there. And so what it looks like is this story right here. Death to self and then life. And where do we see that beginning for us? Where's the great monument that we look back to? It's those outstretched arms on Calvary. Jesus dying for us, showing us how to die to self, then how to rest in the Father's embrace and be resurrected. Symbolized by baptism. And so that's what we can do ourselves as well. Sardis, like I said, mentions in his history as being called the red ones because of their influence and their ability to dye wool and all of that. But notice in Revelation, the last story of the Bible is, at least before the millennium and all that, is Jesus comes on a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood. He is the red one, if you want to take the message of Sardis. He is the one who died for us. And we can be friends of God who have our names openly, joyfully proclaimed by Jesus. Because at that point, it's merely a megaphony echo, a huge echo of what he had uttered way back at the beginning. Jesus knew us beforehand. Before Adam and Eve ever took the fruit, he knew us. He knew who they would be. He knew who their children would be. Even all the way down to Noah's day, Take the whole record of the Bible all the way down. He sees us today even reading these words before the foundation of the world. And he says, I'm coming. You can have your name written right down there forever. No one can blot it out. I won't blot it out. And he joyfully proclaims it to the Father. He takes us from death to life. And I remember when I was born, my grandmother always said, it's a miracle you're alive today. And I told you that story before, how I was born two pounds, 14 ounces. Have you ever taken two pounds, 14 ounces in your hands? I mean, this is probably, who knows, maybe a little bit more than that. But imagine a little baby, two pounds and 14 ounces. Comes out of the womb premature in November instead of January because of something that happened in the home. And then the doctors put too much air in the lungs and boom, burst the lungs, right? No wonder my grandma said, you, you shouldn't even be alive today. God did a miracle. And then the chest tubes go in, you're in the, the, the unit, the special unit for children up in miles away from home, and you live. You go from death to life. And yet that's what he wants to do in each one of our lives. You don't have to have those scars, but spiritually speaking, you need to have these scars, the scars of Jesus. Have faith in them, and then he will give you a new name. 
and you'll be a friend of God forever. You'll go from death to life forever. Our closing song is to that effect. And as we look at the words of this song, it says, I will change your name. This is coming from God. He's, he's saying in this song, and this family beautifully portrayed it, I'm going to change your name. You can't change your name. It's something I do for my bride, something I do for my children. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, excuse me, lowly or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness. That's what he does when he proclaims our name. Overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. Those are the ones that Sardis was to become, and those are the ones that we are to become. Let's listen to this song.
Father in heaven, by faith, we want to be the ones that you do call confidence, joyfulness, overcoming ones. And so guide us each day through the good times, the challenges, times in between, to be shaped by you through the Holy Spirit so we can become the new name that you have waiting for us, a name that will not be blotted out, a name that you've known since before the foundation of the world, and that you want to call us by very soon. Guide us to that day. Help us to share with others that they have a new name waiting for them as well, and they can go from death to life only through you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.